because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today, we are pleased to have Jacob Hess joining us. Thanks so much for being on, Jacob. I'm excited, Ryan. And just so our audience knows, a little bit of Jacob's background is, so he's one of the the four authors that helped to write the book, The Power of Stillness, Mindful Living for Latter-day Saints. And he's also one of the co-founders of Public Square Magazine with Christopher Cunningham, who we had on a few weeks ago. And he's also, he also writes for Public Square Magazine. So we're, we're really grateful to have him on today. Um, so just to kind of get us started, Jacob, could you give us a little bit of your background in terms of how you got interested in mindfulness? You bet. So I was studying depression in graduate school at the University of Illinois. And my neuroscientist advisor said, you need to go to this conference at the University of Massachusetts. I said, okay. So she arranged for me to be able to go. And it was a mindfulness-based interventions in healthcare conference. And uh, I walked in the room and the first thing I noticed is these people were really calm, like weirdly calm I'm a pretty calm guy at least people tell me that (laughs) I I look calm on the outside (laughs) but these people were walking around just with this deep deep settled stillness and I was like wow what is this and they had bumper stickers that said what would Buddha do and lighten up and and so I was intrigued, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, we're not scared. Sorry, I'm yawning. We're not scared of truth wherever it comes from. So that's one of the advantages we have is, it, you know, comes from Buddhism, comes from science, whatever. And I could tell there was something here that could strengthen me and teach me something. So I spent the next couple of years studying mindfulness as an alternative to the dominant um, approach to depression, which is sort of, let's do whatever we can to make this go away, right? Obviously, because depression is terribly painful. So it makes sense. Let's do whatever we can to make it stop. Well, in mindfulness, you have another possibility. What if we actually make space for this and try to understand what this is saying. What is depression signaling to us? Sort of like you put your hand on the stove and that pain is telling you something, right? So a mindful approach to depression is not just about making it go away. It's about making space 
for it enough to understand what it is, where it might be coming from, what's contributing to it, and what it might suggest about how our life needs to change. Um, you, know, you can make comparisons to a mindful approach to faith crisis or sexuality or anger or addiction, same kind of shift. Instead of just trying to control it, manage it, make it go away, make it stop, make the tension stop, mindfulness is more of a gentle approach to make space around things and learn from them and grow with them. So that was my initial is like, wow, that seemed very different on an intellectual level from what I've been hearing and what we see is the dominant kind of make it go away approach. Later on, I trained as a mindfulness teacher and started practicing myself and helping others learn to actually um, do it in their lives. And that led to the book. That's the background. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. So I guess the next thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, yeah, how how can this perspective of, of mindfulness, how can it be helpful both for, maybe we can mention how it can be helpful for those that are experiencing a crisis of faith, but also how it can help Latter-day Saints just live a more healthy life in general and think about things in a more a more healthy way. Sure. So John Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way on purpose as if your life depended on it. Um, and actually, let me expand that definition. Paying attention in a non-judgmental way. Um, so... It's easy to think of mindfulness as like the Buddhist concept. In fact, I just introduced it in this conversation as a Buddhist idea. But Jesus Christ, nine different times in his life, um, stepped away from the craziness of whatever was going on. He pushed away and he retreated when John the Baptist died. He left. He went to the mountains to commune with God. For the Sermon on the Mount, anybody who watched The Chosen may have noticed a little moment, the last episode of The Chosen. Jesus Christ, right before the Sermon on the Mount, gets away. So um, what we tried to do in the book is help people understand the Christian roots of this thing that the world calls mindfulness as well. And that's why we use the language of stillness, silence, solitude, space. All those things are connected with this thing that might seem weird and foreign. So the way I would say it, Ryan, to your question now, is that Rather than thinking about the gospel, you know, it's the Sabbath today or it's Monday night, it's easy to think about what do I have to do? Here's here's my list of things I need to do. 
in the gospel. And people talk about being tired and feeling busy. Um, But what if we approach the gospel as a long list of excuses to stop, pause the craziness, get away from the madness, like, ah, it's time to pray. I can just like kneel down and not just be in my head, not just be taking more stuff in. We can be with God. And we don't always, we don't also just have to fill the air with words. Be here before our God. Sabbath day. Okay, what if Sabbath was like, let's push away, push away all the craziness. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, not check my email. I'm not going to check the news at least as much. All right. It's Monday night or it's um, it's time to go to the temple, et cetera, et cetera. So I believe having taught lots of people with no faith that Latter-day Saints have an advantage and that we have built into our religious commitments lots of excuses to stop (laughs) and to not just do things to actually be and to be present be present with each other and with god and with ourselves president monson once talked about communing with yourself and you know sometimes we don't really know what to say to god if we don't actually commune with ourselves enough that we know what's in our heart So my life is better when I build a little bit of this stoppage time, like they call in soccer, (laughs) this stoppage time into my life. I mean, how many of us know like what it's, what it's like to get to the end of a Sabbath day and feel exhausted. The problem, not what the Sabbath is for. I I heard this week that um, Jewish people put boundaries on anything heavy, like talking about heavy things, like heavy things going on in the world or in our lives. Try to make the Sabbath not so emotionally heavy like other days. And I think there's a lot of ways we could turn our Sabbath into a retreat and turn our temple uh, visits into a practice of non-doing rather than getting things done and our scriptures and prayers into a a communion like the Lord going away to the mountain. Did that get at your question? Yeah, I think that answered part of it. And yeah, I really love just, yeah, the power of mindfulness in that. I think it can be very easy as Latter-day Saints to have a very kind of checklist mentality of the gospel. But I think through mindfulness, it can kind of put the, the emphasis more on we're going to be present with the Lord because like, I just think in our closest relationships, we're not just trying to get it done. We're enjoying being present with them. And I think these are opportunities to enjoy being present with with the Lord. Um, So I really love that perspective. And the other part of my question that I wanted to kind of 
maybe dig more to dig deeper into is this idea of mindfulness. How can it be relevant to those that are going to going through kind of a faith crisis? For example, maybe maybe they had a more idealistic way of looking at the church per se, and then maybe they've learned more about Mountain Meadows Massacre or polygamy or our church's racial history. And there's kind of just these very uncomfortable feelings that they're experiencing right now. Great. Let's talk about that. Um, Clearly important and really tender, sensitive area. So um, I want to, I want to clarify Ryan that you use the language of through mindfulness, we can learn. We're pretty careful in our book to avoid turning mindfulness into sort of this new um, external thing that we all need in order to be okay. <clears throat> our argument is this is how the Lord wants, has wanted it in the first place. And it's only because we've gotten so <clears throat> fast and speedy and out of control that we even need a corrective. So in the West, we just run a million miles an hour and we all walk around in our heads, you know, we're on our devices or in our, our heads lost in our thoughts. And one of the big risk factors for depression is just stewing over things in our minds, you know, like over and over in the hamster wheel of our heads. So one of the things, and this is getting at your question now, one of the things we can learn is to notice when we're just stewing over things in our heads. Now, this is true of relationship problems. It's true of, you know, things going on in the world. It's true of faith crisis, questions about the church. If we're stewing and kind of like brooding, ruminating over and over in our heads, that's not mentally healthy for any situation. But that's, that's often where we find ourselves when we're confronted with some, pain, some painful situation, like, you know, a, an argument in, in a relationship. We, it, it's just very natural to just walk around and stew about it. And mindfulness is an invitation to push back from the thoughts and not take them so personally. And say, okay, here's some mental content coming through my mind, whether it's like this rumination about, I just heard this, this is terrible. Push back and experience it as mental content, almost like um, a cloud passing overhead or um, weather patterns in the sky. You know, when yesterday we were out at a soccer game and it got rainy and cloudy and started to rain and we didn't go oh no you know this is how it is this is just it it's terrible it's like no okay we're gonna go get in the car we're not gonna play the soccer game we're gonna protect ourselves so whether we're talking about depression or like anger in a relationship or anger passing through in our relationship to god or the church we can work through these things 
what I see people doing is having some kind of an experience, you know, seeing or hearing something. And rather than seeing it as something they can work through and seek understanding and, and reconciliation beyond, it's like, it's like this, the proverbial argument that takes a relationship down, you know? <clears throat> I just talked to a therapist yesterday who said he's working with a couple that divorced over their dog. <clears throat> like, they had an argument about a dog, and they ended their marriage because of it. <clears throat> Divorcing the church is a serious thing. <clears throat> Clearly, like, people put a lot of thought into it. But <laughs> it's an eternal thing. And uh, everything that I hear people concerned about from sexuality, historical issues to current concerns is workable. None of it has to be fatal. But the way that we can stew and brood and kind of work ourselves up and allow those thoughts and feelings to become the dominant sort of all-consuming reality rather than, okay, I just heard this accusation and it was, you know, the person that was making it or sharing it was coming from a particular stance. Um, one thing I'll, I'll add, Ryan, is everything that happens in history has to be interpreted by someone now. There is no historical data anywhere that speaks for itself. It all has to have an interpreter. That's true of science, scientific data too. Like it doesn't, no data just like, here's the truth. So what we have is data being interpreted by people. They share that interpretation and we have to make an interpretation. So that's where the freedom comes. Whose interpretation are we going to believe? <clears throat> Whose interpretation do we feel peace about? I would say if we've heard something that is like deeply unsettling and removing our peace, we ought to ask like, okay, well, is that interpretation true? Let, let me go back to the relationship thing. <clears throat> are you married, Ryan? I'm not married. Well, you know, when you're in a relationship, right? When you are dating someone or, or maybe even a roommate and you have a thought about this person that really makes you mad or you have a thought about this person that's really unsettling. It could be true, right? But the chances are is that that thought is actually a little skewed and it's generating all this emotional angst because it's like it's a you know it's kind of this skewed view of this person so in my experience if i am seeing something true i there's an alignment inside me i kind of feel this um this deep settled like yeah that's true it's i can it's Joseph Smith said, truth tastes good. Now, I know that some of the um, post-Mormon folks don't believe that. They like to say things like, well, sometimes truth just 
know, you got to follow truth, even if it totally destroys everything you once believed. I actually think that's an impoverished way to think about knowing truth, because what it does is it uh, it removes all the evidence inside us that could help. Um, and it claims that, okay, I'm embracing this truth because it's logical, because this person has told me. William James, I promise I'm almost done. William James is a famous psychologist. He speaks about the idea of radical empiricism, which means we take all the evidence into account, external and internal. And I would argue, Ryan, and this is a very Latter-day Saint, you know, this is what we believe as saints that all those feelings of peace and joy and alignment inside are part of the evidence. And those that dismiss them and say, ah, you can't depend on that internal stuff. They're actually cutting out like a big chunk of evidence, right? Like, like, like they're rationalizing so that they no longer pay attention to the internal evidence. Paul, in the New Testament, talks about faith as an evidence, as, as a kind of evidence inside. Um, so I actually think our position is stronger than people realize. The Latter-day Saint position is we're not afraid of external evidence, but we also take into account the internal evidence in our heart, in our mind, and then like how that, how that plays into it. You know, we, we're looking at all the evidence. And if you disregard feelings of peace and joy and, you know, and, and, and what something you've heard is doing to your heart and your mind, boy, you're, you're cutting out a big, big part of the evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think if the gospel is true, like what we do claim is that, we know truth both by faith and by reason, both by that spiritual internal aspect, but also through the, the rational aspect of it. And it's really important that we consider both aspects of that. So I really love that point. Beautiful. Yeah. Great connection. Um, and I, I guess kind of, if you have anything more to say about that, feel free to speak up, but it's another kind of question about this is, I think when we're in this this state of faith crisis, um, maybe we're kind of observing, um, we're looking back on our growing up years in the church, and we observe this perceived lack of transparency transparency in the church, and it might feel like the church has been lying to you. How can we respond to to that idea of the that the church has been lying? Yeah, <clears throat> great question. So this is an example of something that we hear, something that is said. Maybe somebody's referencing a particular historical situation and the accusation comes because that's what that is, right? It's an accusation. If somebody came and said, Ryan, you've been lying to me, right? You'd probably be like, oh, wow, you know? That's quite a weighty accusation. So let's let's connect this to the previous question a little bit. Um, 
when a serious accusation comes at us or against something that we have trusted and loved, we have two options. I'm just going to say it this way. Um, we can take that accusation and, and, and sort of embrace it as reality. Like, oh my gosh, this thing I used to trust. I mean, it's been fine to me. Can you believe this? And like, if we adopt that interpretation or narrative as reality, we live it out. We don't just tell stories, we live them. And so people can like have this shock and this trauma of like, oh gosh, now I know the truth. This person has told me the truth. And it's like this awful, you know, this, you know, I, I hear stories about people just having these awfully traumatic and horrific kind of shattering experience. The other option is everything we've been talking about. It's to make space around the whole thing. Say, okay, here is this argument. Person is putting forth this interpretation. Here, here it is, right? I'm going to notice that it's here. Um, just like we do in mindfulness, a thought comes through, and it's our decision about whether to embrace it or not. It's our decision whether to decide it's true or not. And uh, it may or may not be true. I don't know if you ever have thoughts that come through your head that are just nonsense. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I think we all do. So it can be liberation to like somebody with depression who has all these thoughts about how terrible they are and you know, how awful they are and how awful life is and hopeless to just push back and say, hold on now. Wow. The propaganda of depression, right? This is, this is serious. Or somebody with addiction and you're like thoughts and feelings of craving that come through and to push back and say, okay, hold on now. I'm not just going to go with this. I'm not just going to go with these depressive thoughts or with these craving energies. And in a similar way, I don't have to just go with the accusation. I don't just have to like write it. I don't have to embrace it and live it out. I can say, okay, um, all right. Well, is it true? So like, there's this added level of scrutiny and evaluation where we, okay, is this one of the nonsense things or something I should embrace is true. There is space for you to think critically about everything that comes up. This, that's what, what a lot of this is. It's critical thinking. You know, what is critical thinking? It means you hear something in social media or you hear something in the news, you hear something from some random person and you just, okay, that's an interesting argument. I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to think for myself. And a lot of these people that are making the accusation, of course, sell themselves as the one who is thinking for themselves, right? I'm thinking for myself. I'm investigating the church from an objective standpoint. I'm going to tell you what I found. Don't um, relinquish your own responsibility to think for yourself because there, the um, variety of nonsense out there is endless about everything, not just the church. I mean, like about everything. You know, about sexuality, about politics, about um, 
I mean, everything. There's just so much nonsense and deception out there that if we don't think for ourselves, we're going to swallow something. Whole. Now, there's a whole other way to answer your question, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Let's hear I, it. Yeah, I, I just wanted to make that first point because that's like the, the, the point that's closer to experience. And if I can summarize the first point, uh, and add one thing to it, and then we'll go to the next. Um, when we're not being mindful, any thought or feeling that comes can be suffocating, and it can fill the whole space. Uh, it's kind of a gas. You know, in chemistry, there is a gas law. It says if you release a gas in a room, it fills the whole room, right? And in our bodies, in our minds, we all know what it's like to, to feel angry. And then that anger takes over everything or to feel like uh, craving for something. And then that just takes over everything or to have fear or anxiety. You know, it just takes over everything. Mindfulness and this, this approach we're describing is about making space. And this is going to sound weird, but hear me out. Making space so that we can feel something, but it doesn't have to take over everything. We can be like, okay, I'm noticing this feeling of frustration. And what else is here? What is underneath the frustration? What else is here? Am I feeling peace? Well, no, I'm not feeling peace. Am I feeling joy right now? No, I'm not feeling joy. Like, what am I noticing in the, in my body? What kind of thoughts am I having? And so, it, 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 in that space, our experience can become complex rather than um, driven by just any, like a single emotion. There's sort of an oversimplification that happens when we get hijacked by a single emotion or a single thought, and we're no longer seeing complexity. We're no longer actually experiencing the full scope of whatever happened. We're just mad at our roommates or, uh, you know, at that politician or about (laughs) at the church. People are more complex. They're not cartoons and institutions are as well. So if you find yourself in this sort of rampage against the system or this or that institution or this person, you're probably caught up in something. I say that about everything, including politicians that we love to hate or sports figures. So on to the second point, Ryan. Um, The way I have come to understand it is um, the previous generation did history in a different way than we did. They just did. American history classes of yesterday told a story about America that was trying to convey its greatness. Just how they did it. It wasn't wrong. It was just different. It was trying to share the nobility and the vision of America through history. Because of that, they didn't spend as much time on the negative stuff. I didn't hear in my history class about the CIA uh, contributing to uh, coups in Latin America and 
<laughs> supporting some right-wing dictators to stand up against the leftists. I didn't hear about the mass, uh, um, what's it called? I, I didn't hear about other some other terrible things. We all heard about slavery, but there were other things that were not touched on as extensively in American history. But the point I'm making is that wasn't because my American history teacher was lying to me or the people that made the history books. They, the craft of history was different 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 20 years ago. And that's okay. Like we can appreciate those differences without making a whole generation of people out to be liars. Our grandfathers came home from a war and they didn't go on the talk shows and talk about all the details of what happened in the foxhole. And when they held their friend and they died their last breath or they saw their friend get his, his arm shot off and they didn't go on the talk shows and talk about the abuse they had growing up, right? It was different. <clears throat> they came home and they mostly didn't talk about the war trauma. And they mostly didn't talk about abuse. And there's some problems with that. It's a good thing that we're more open about abusive situations and helping people work through trauma. There are some differences that we can say, oh, that's good that we are more open to talking about it today. But there were also some virtues to just saying, hey, you know, let's try to focus on the positive. And in order to survive, sometimes I think they just, you know, let's not spend so much time on the negative. <clears throat> and in our talk show therapy tell-all generation, sometimes we look back on our grandparents' generation with some pretty remarkable um, judgment. And some pretty ethnocentric judgment, meaning like we apply our standards in our generation to the previous generation in a way that's sort of like, really? Are we really doing that? <laughs> Are we really not considering that they come with their own standpoints and biases and, and perspectives and they had a reason to come at it differently? So as you can tell, I'm a little tired of the accusation that the church has just been lying to you. Like I used to have more patience for it. Now I'm like, um, if this is really about complexity and being objective and fair, then we would at least, at the very least, acknowledge that previous generations of histo historians <clears throat> and history come with a different standpoint than ours <clears throat> and that's okay and so they paid a little more attention to positives and they they perhaps tried to use history to tell a positive story and i don't even think that's a bad thing in the book of mormon uh, um mormon in the in the title page of the book of mormon talks about his desire to share history not just to be some neutral observer, but to remind people that God hadn't given up on them and that God was real. And so he had an agenda. He wanted in the history for us to learn some things about God. 
now is that like uh, less enlightened view of history than ours today? I don't think so. In some ways, I think ours is less enlightened. We've kind of given up on any agenda. We just want to like share the full truth as if there was no agenda, you know. So that's what I would say is I'm kind of exhausted with the accusation that the church has just been lying. I I think if we're honest, if, if this is really about honesty, we would understand the the way his, history has evolved over time. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely think, yeah, it's important to just take that step back and do some critical thinking. And because a lot of the messages that are given both in the religious realm, as well as the political realm, it's, it's the accusations are given to, to give you that emotional response um, just the other night, one of my roommates and I were just talking about how both like Democrats and Republicans do that, where the, the Democrats, they cry racism and that, and that gives emotional responses to people. And the other side, they, they, they claim socialism or whatever. And just those words without even like digging deeper into what the other side is saying, those kind of just give you like those emotional type responses and people will respond certain ways to that. But then just there's important aspect of just kind of being present with the situation and just really digging a little bit deeper than into things. Things aren't always as simple as they, as we make them out to be both in in either direction. Let's talk about that. That's a great example. Um, because right now in politics, um, we do tell some pretty sinister stories about the politicians we don't like, like by sinister, I mean like cartoonishly evil. It's like, don't you realize what Biden is doing? Don't you realize how he's intentionally lying to us and trying to like bankrupt our country? Don't you realize how President Trump is actually like trying to, you know, be a totalitarian dictator? Don't you, are you appreciating the agenda here? You know, I'm not, this isn't about denying real evil because, you know, Paul talks about spiritual wickedness in high places. There is real evil, despite what some love to say about like. But anytime you hear a portrayal of anyone, and I mean even Karl Marx, let's take him as an example. Like how many times have you heard like these sinister, like this is who Marx really was? Don't you realize his pact with the devil, right? Now, I used to believe that, too, until I actually met two Marxists who became best friends. Like, they don't, they're not ashamed of it. They're just like, yeah, I'm a Marxist. And after talking to them and understanding more of the history, more of what Karl Marx actually taught, it seems much more likely to me that he taught some things not intending for his ideas to lead to billions of deaths in the Soviet Union and China. I don't, I think that would have horrified the Karl Marx I understand from his, the, the full scope of his teachings. But like Jesus Christ, his teachings have been skewed and misused in some poor ways by people, right? I think it's much more likely that he, he taught some things that, that were short-sighted and didn't, you know, didn't have the full scope of things and people misused them. So I'm making the point about Karl Marx because he's like 
the demon on the right. We love to demonize this man. And of course, we do that with presidents and we do that with past figures like Joseph Smith, as the angel prophesied. But if we really care uh, to the question about integrity, as you wanted to talk about, if we really care about having an honest portrayal of anyone, then we should be suspicious when we're hearing something that brings out all these negative evidences to paint a picture of someone as purely sinister. There are some, I'm sh- I mean, when the more you hear about Harvey Weinstein, you're like, Oh goodness. Or, you know, the more you hear about people that have um, sexually trafficked other human beings. Um, but, but for most people, if you dig enough, you start to see complexity And that's where I think the full truth is. I have a friend who is um, a defense attorney for people on death row. And um, that's about as bad as you can get, right? Somebody that has killed someone or multiple people. And you know what he does as a defense attorney? He does this. He gets up in front of a judge and he actually, he told me that this is like, this is the essence of his job. He paints the full picture for the court. Many people who end up killing someone else have been abused or or manipulated or they were under the influence of some chemical. And so when you paint the full story of someone's life, you can have proper um, mercy for them and say, wow, if I had been through that horrific kind of abuse, I mean, who knows where I'd be? I mean, this is a, another crazy example. I'm using all the crazy examples. We've got Marx. Now let's talk about Hitler. His father was awful. It, he was vicious. He was absolutely emotionally the worst father. And so Hitler grew up with like this corrosive, continual presence in his life, demeaned and moved in this direction. Would Hitler have done everything he did? Now, I'm not saying that that's like the cause. Clearly, like there's, we're talking about complexity. I'm just using these extreme examples to say, if we care about the full truth, as in God's eye view, this is how I think he sees things. I don't think he sees Joe Biden as a cartoonishly evil figure or Trump or Marx and, you know, you know, even some, someone as who's done as, as much terrific harm as Adolf Hitler had an abusive father. And that matters. I mean, it's not like, therefore he doesn't, he's not responsible. So I'm an advocate for complex, the complexity, the full complexity. And many of the people that pretend to be doing that, like I'm telling you the full truth. I'm going to tell you the full truth about Joe Biden or about uh, Trump or about Joseph Smith. They're not actually doing that. Because if you pay attention, they're not actually going into the virtues. They're not telling you the story of, uh, that would actually help you see Joe Biden as a human being or illustrate the mag- um, magnificent magnificence of Joseph Smith's 
prophetic vision. They, people create caricatures and cartoons that, that lead somebody to really distrust someone else. So, um, yeah, I, I, if we care about the full truth, we've got to be suspicious of any telling of anyone that just, that just leaves you feeling like this person is the spawn of the devil. And that, that's all they are. There's nothing more to it. Yeah, no, I love that. that. Sorry, that, sorry that, that was a little long, Ryan. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> it kind of made me think with like, yeah, I think some of our critics who are criticizing Joseph Smith, for example, if they were interested in the full truth and conveying that, not only would they convey maybe mistakes Joseph Smith had or maybe false revelations per se, but they'd also put forth these things of, okay, I have no idea how Joseph knew this. I have no idea how he translated the Book of Mormon. Just kind of covering the nuance of things of Joseph Smith just, or the fact that he died for what he believed, or just kind of like the fact that he could have had all this earthly gain through his actions and he really didn't. Um, and I don't, I don't think we're really seeing that that much. Um, so I think Amen. that's a significant thing. Amen. Uh, by the way, one way to bring this home and personalize it is to imagine like someone who's your enemy. Like, I don't know, like you said something unkind in high school and they've hated you ever since. Right. Do you have any enemies? I don't, you probably don't. Um, uh, but imagine you did <laughs> and they decided they were going to make a documentary on the true story of Ryan Sorensen. You know, like I'm going to tell the world the truth. And they go about interviewing anyone that didn't like you. And they kind of dig into your records and find that you, uh, you had got a couple unpaid parking tickets and you spent a night in jail once or whatever. I'm not saying you did spend a night in jail. But if anyone took that sort of critical, like, I'm going to tell the truth about Jacob Hess, they could, they could tell a story. They could, like, work up this story and, you know, put dark overtones on it and I remember when PBS came out with their series, The Mormons. I told everyone about it. I was like, hey, wonderful, PBS. I mean, they're fair, right? And I told all my classmates in graduate school, go watch this, because this is my faith, you know? Back when we used to be Mormons. I'm, I'm really glad. I, I actually, I've heard a lot of people mock President Nelson. I mean, I've heard some people mock him, like, ah, this silliness, you know, just, just call us Mormons. No, no, he's right that there's a different feel to saying we are saints, we are followers in, of Christ. I don't feel a connection to Mormon like I used to. But back then, so this documentary comes out, and I tell everybody about it, and then it starts. Helen Whitney, I think, is the one who produced it, and it has these dark overtones, and they use this picture of Joseph where he looks kind of creepy, and they focus on these creepy things about Joseph. And it's like this super sophisticated smear is what it is. It's like the National Enquirer, just sophisticated version. And I was so disheartened because I, I, I had assumed that we, you know, okay, PBS, we're going to tell a complex story. No, no, they didn't. But here's the point. Everybody else thought they did because they're PBS. And so this 
no, we're being fair and we're just telling the full truth. So I think, Ryan, this is actually pretty hard for people to tell. And when you, when you watch like a true crime documentary, you get gripped with this sort of morbid fascination. So I think there's actually something in our psychology that loves the gory stories. And you watch something. I had somebody come up, come up to me the other day and say, did you know Joe Biden is a child predator? <laughs> you know? I was like, I, I kind of burst out laughing like, are you serious? But we like to be in on the true secret about someone, right? Like it, there's like a, I call it a morbid fascination because like we're in on the truth. But, it's, but that's not the same as peace and joy. And if you hear something that is true, you're going to feel more than like this creepy, morbid fascination. You're going to feel peace. And I know that the post-Mormon crowd loves to sort of mock that idea. Ah, peace. What does that matter? I used to believe that peace matter. It does. It totally does. You can fake a lot of emotions. You can fake excitement. You can, you can work up excitement about something that is absolutely wrong, but you cannot fake peace. You can't. You cannot generate peace yourself. So if you're going in a, in a direction and you cannot feel peace in your gut, I'm not talking about just sort of some head, some comfort in your, some rationalization. I'm talking about in your gut, in your core, in your quiet moments when you're all alone, <clears throat> then something's wrong. I, w I was once engaged to, uh, I was once in love with a girl. Head over heels, like I had every thing in me wanting to marry this girl and I couldn't feel peace there was n I, I, I could not feel peace about moving forward I didn't know why there's no, nothing in my head no red flags and no matter what I did I could not feel peace until we broke up <clears throat> and then the peace came back so I trust peace and the Buddha actually going back to <laughs> Buddhism Buddha taught follow the peace, which I think is correlates really beautifully with what Jesus taught. Trust the peace. Don't trust the people that say peace doesn't matter, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> That's not ancient wisdom, for sure. Seems like pretty profound foolishness to cut people off from their own gut signal of reality. And what is right and that's that's what i see i think some of these commentators are doing rationalizing people away from connection to their deepest sense of what is right and that's tragic and it's dangerous um and it's sad i've been blabbing on too much is there anything else you want to talk about oh. I love these thoughts. Um, so I have one more question I want to ask you, but before I ask that, is there anything else about either like faith crisis or mindfulness that you want to share before we go to our final question? I just want to acknowledge that, you know, in a short conversation like we're having, we can't talk on all the dimensions. I know that experiences of faith crisis are more complicated than, any summary statement can get at like we're just talking in broad brush strokes 
and not but I would hope that people who are in the middle of a struggle with faith can approach it not as an emergency that they have to like you know do something drastic I would I would love if we approach it more like um an attachment injury in marriages or in in other relationships when when something happens that unsettles trust therapists call it an attachment injury it's an injury to our attachment the good news about attachment injury is it can heal it doesn't have to just go on forever and be like this raw wound forever an attachment wound can heal as you work with it gently, you know, think about an athlete who gets a wound. Well, they, they have to treat it a little differently and hold it differently and move with it differently. That's similar to <clears throat> attachment injury. You, you approach it differently and it can heal and hold on to that hope rather than I, I fear sometimes that the, the faith crisis language pushes people to some drastic action. Like, okay, the house is on fire. I got to get out <clears throat> rather than, a language of attachment injury is it's patience, it's gentleness, it's, it's cradling the wound and, and waiting till it heals and trusting that it will heal. And the, the house isn't going to burn down. Don't jump ship. Don't jump out of the, the ninth story window to try to escape. Stay with us. Have patience and trust that, that, that healing can come. That's what I would say. I love that. I think that's a lot of a lot of great words. And one thing I want to just mention before I ask the last question is just this idea of following the peace. I really love that. And the route to finding that may there may be some complexity with that. Um, the interview that will be released right before this one is an interview that I I did with Steve Densley, where he gave a talk at the Fair Conference a few years ago on some barriers to belief with mental health and per se. So maybe you have some barriers to belief that like, maybe you're struggling with the church. Maybe you don't really feel peace. There may be some mental health aspect with that. And you may think, Oh, if I just leave the church, I'll feel better. But those mental health issues will probably follow you even when you leave and they'll attach themselves to other things. So follow, find the peace on, but that might be more complex than what some, some people might say, oh, you're not feeling that peace in the church, just leave. People have very unique circumstances. I'm not going to say it's all mental health related. There are, there are real issues, but just that's just something to kind of consider um, as you think about this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, my research is on Prozac, and even if something as simple as when you're on an antidepressant, it is sometimes harder to feel the spirit it just is it might be it might be actually a, quite difficult because um, it, it shifts something in your brain so you don't feel as much emotional pain but you also have a harder time feeling emotional um sweetness so yeah. and even something as simple as that i mean that's just one of many factors right yeah so yeah good point and then, so the question I want to close with is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you?
My favorite way of summarizing what it has meant to me is tomorrow doesn't have to be the same as today. In almost every circumstance where someone is in excruciating pain, a part of the pain is the belief that this is going to be my life. This is it. I've got this addiction. This is just how I'm always going to be. I've got this mental illness. There's no deeper healing for me. This is just going to be my, I'm just going to have to manage this forever. Now I'm in faith crisis. This is just, you know, my faith is always going to be different. I'll never feel what I used to feel. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not in a relationship. I'm never going to be in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of that is true. In my in my life, Ryan, I have seen evidence of this that the good news that Jesus offers is that this can be a new moment right now. Unlike any moment that's come before. Like this breath is new it's like factually this is not a poetic thing i'm saying like factually this breath you've never taken before you feel the breath rising and falling like you've never had that breath before and then this one and the next one and and i say that I I connect it to the breath because that's something we can feel like right now. But consider what it means. It means um, because of Jesus, this next breath can be brand new. Meaning if we've been grappling with addiction or anger or depression or anxiety or like this, you know, angst about the church. We don't have to just bring this into our life forever. It's true that social scientists like to say the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And for the natural man, that's true. The best predictor of what tomorrow is going to be like for a natural man and woman is today. But not for a believer. Not for somebody who acknowledges the reality of Christ. That is the tragedy of people walking away from the Lord. You are kind of moving into a life where you're just, your past is going to shape your future. And the possibility of a mighty change and a new heart and a new mind and a new creature, good luck finding it without Jesus. Good luck finding your way to freedom from addiction or deep healing from depression or, you know, a, a a reconciled relationship with a spouse without Christ. It's it's not going to happen. And if it does, it'll probably secretly be because of him if you don't acknowledge it. <laughs> you don't recognize it. So the good news is real change is possible. And that's what brings me hope, Ryan, in the middle of all these messes. I mean, just look around from coronavirus 
to the politics, to the economy, to like sexuality. There's endless messes everywhere you look. And we can feel peace. Like he says, be of good cheer. Do not fear. I have overcome the world. Let your hearts not be troubled. Do we believe him? Do we actually believe him to live that way now? Not later, when you're married and when my little girl is is not sick and when America's in a better place and when the, the pen, but now, like right now. And, 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 and even like in the middle of some uncertainty and questions about the church. Can you can we reach for the Lord and and let him give us his joy and peace and power? That's what President Nelson has been pleading with us to receive. And and my prayer is we'll take him at his word. President Nelson is is saying there is so much more. There's so much more. And that's what I hope those that are struggling can find. Don't spend all your time just ruminating about these accusations take president nelson at his word when he says god wants to give you so much more thank you ryan for this opportunity yeah amen to everything you said thank you so much for being on jacob appreciate your time happy sabbath brother happy sabbath thanks for joining us everyone this has been the to whom shall we go podcast We'll see you next time.